selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hello everyone, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We'll get into this episode of the Spike podcast in just a moment. But before we do that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to our Christmas appeal so far. As people who listen to this podcast or watch this podcast know, Spiked is completely free because we want anyone anywhere to be able to engage with our ideas. But in order to keep Spiked free, we ask people who can afford it to donate to us to support our work. Your donations have never been more important, particularly given what a hostile environment the advertising world is to dissenting voices like ours these days. Indeed, even as our audience has gone up in recent years, our advertising revenue has actually gone down because there's a certain type of woke corporate who would rather pass up the opportunity to sell you things if it means they don't have to deal with the likes of us. But who needs them? More than 70% of our revenue now comes from our supporters and our donors. And as we're going into the Christmas period, we're asking people who maybe haven't donated before, maybe haven't donated for a while, or can maybe afford to donate just a little bit more to dig deep for us this Christmas and to fund our work as we go into 2024. Your money really does make a huge difference if everyone who read Spiked any given month, gave us just £5 this Christmas, we could fund our work for two years and we could take Spiked to the next level. And rest assured, we've got a lot of really exciting stuff in store for you over the weeks and months ahead. So if you like what we do here at Spiked, if you support our work, if you know that the media is a much better place with us in it, please do give generously this Christmas. To do so, just go to spiked-online.com slash donate and please give generously. Or if you want to make a donation of £50 or more, you can take the opportunity to get one of these beautiful free spiked mugs, which we're offering to anyone who gives that amount, £50 or more, over the festive period while stocks last. It's for UK donors only, unfortunately. So if you want to get your hands on one of these, go to spiked-online.com forward slash mug. That's spiked-online.com forward slash mug. Thanks so much. We really wouldn't be here without you. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Spike Podcast. I'm Lauren Smith, sitting in for Fraser this week. And joining me today is Tom Slater, editor of Spike. Hello. And also with us is Dennis Kavanagh, the director of the Gay Men's Network. Hi. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing the silencing of gender-critical MPs, the return of blasphemy laws to Europe, and why eco-activists hate Christmas. So this week, we have seen uh, Tory MP Rachel McLean get into a bit of trouble 
over a apparently controversial thing that she said. Um, she pointed out the fact that um, one of the Green Party's uh, MP candidates in Bromsgrove, uh, Melissa Poulton, was in fact a biological man. Um, and looking at any pictures of Melissa Poulton, I'm sure we'll probably insert some here um, for visual aids for our, <laughs> our viewers. But um, Melissa Poulton is quite obviously a man in a wig. Um, however, Rachel McLean's comments about him being a biological man um, appeared to have caused some upset. Uh, she was accused of being transphobic. She was called vile, hateful. She was even reported to the police for a supposed non-crime hate incident. Um, Dennis, what do you make of this story? Have you been following it at all? What do you I, make of this? I, I have been following it. And on, on one level, it's it's comedic because this is very clearly, um, exactly as Rachel McLean MP said, a, a bloke in a wig. But there is a really serious side to this story as well from a gay rights perspective. This guy calls himself a lesbian, right? And he demands everyone call him a lesbian. He says, in fact, he is a proud lesbian. No one ever asked lesbians if that was all right. Okay. Um, everyone is kowtowing to this chap using female pronouns for him, um, acquiescing to the proposition that he is a lesbian. Um, this is grossly, grossly offensive to lesbians because if you as a minority community lose the right to define yourself as as what everyone knows a lesbian is, a same-sex attracted female, and if someone else comes in from the outside and redefines you as constituency, that is the very essence of homophobia. And there's a there's a second order problem here. Um, it, it recalls, I think, you know, the final words of 84, the party telling you to reject the evidence of your eyes and your ears. You can't say what you see. And the party in question here is, is the Green Party. So Rachel McLean is absolutely correct to, one, say what she said, and two, thank goodness, to, to stand up and, and to say, no, I have a right to say this. I have a Forstater-style protected belief. Um, but, but as I say, the, the, the particular axe I have to grind on this is how dare this guy come in, this transvestite, and tell us that he's just redefined what a lesbian is. I can tell, I can tell you now, um, certainly in the chat groups and the political work I do, lesbians are not tremendously happy with that. Yeah, so Tom, what have you made of this story? No, I mean, I share a lot of Dennis's thoughts about it, and especially was the intervention of the police I thought was so shocking. Now, it seems like she's been given one of these non-crime hate incidents, which is something that, of course, was supposed to end <laughs> as a practice, but um, as we all know, that makes no difference with the blob that exists within the police or any of our institutions at the moment. They just carry on regardless. Um, I mean, what is it that she... What hatred has she supposedly perpetrated in this instance? Is it hateful to point out the bleeding obvious? But unfortunately, that is the situation we've got into. And also, I just don't understand why even members of the police service are happy with a situation where they've be effectively become the kind of renter goons of various yeah. trans activists. This happens time and time again because of the fact that they know even if they can't get them on one of the already pretty vague and easy to abuse kind of hate speech and hate crime laws that we have, you can just get them with one of these non-crime hate incidents, which is a, a, a non-crime, so it doesn't, you don't actually have to have committed anything, but, but it's also entirely subjective, so it can be something that can haunt you forever. I think that's the key thing with so much of this, is that it's the willingness of institutions, of the authorities, the state even, to play along with this stuff. And not only just to play along with this stuff, to, but to mete out punishment on anyone who is willing to say what everyone else is thinking, is something which is so pernicious. And even in a situation like this, when it's so obvious that what this MP was saying was correct, it's just a reminder that of all of the great and genuine gains that have been made by the gender-critical side, if we're going to call it that, over the course of the past few years, 
it's really difficult to dislodge this ideology, not least because of the hold it has within those kinds of institutions like the police. But I don't, I don't know what you think, Dennis, what it would take to kind of take us to that well, I, I do think we are slightly further forward because I was talking about this today and um, I noticed Rachel McLean has, has doubled down and, and said, absolutely, I'm not apologising. I said what I said. And, and Rachel's been very, you know, moderate in this and, and, and said, look, I'm not going out to offend people. I'm not saying that trans people don't deserve respect. I'm, ju I'm just calling a spade a spade here. But my, my view on this is 24 months ago, say, in this debate, I would have expected an apology and a climb down. Mm. And I think the discourse um, has, has markedly changed this week. The, the problem that we've got here is this Stonewall umbrella of trans, which just has everything under it, the Stonewall definition includes cross-dressers, is placing a veil of protection and a veil of civil rights um, over characters, frankly, who are not deserving of it. Um, the, Melissa Poulton is not so dissimilar to Eddie Izzard, right? I, Eddie Izzard is a heterosexual male transvestite, all right? He calls himself trans, but he does not have the same experience as, say, a post-surgical transsexual. Right? He does not have the same experience as someone struggling with crippling gender dysphoria. And it's this amalgam um, that's creating this sort of veneer of civil rights where it just shouldn't exist. Because I'm sorry, paraphilic cross-dressing is not uncommon as a heterosexual male fetish. And I do not understand why these heterosexual male fetishes are indulged to this extent. And I would point out that the homosexual variants, so I don't know, going around in leathers or something like that, would never be indulged to this extent. This is a very powerful lesson about who really holds power uh, in this society, in my view. And it's not just Rachel McLean that has been in trouble this week. Um, Kemi Badenoch has also found herself under fire, uh, particularly by um, Labour MP Kate Osborne, who uh, particularly took umbrage to the fact that uh, last week, Kemi Badenoch described um, this kind of in massive increase of young people being mm. referred to NHS, gender identity service clinics, as a epidemic, she said that it, well. She said it was almost epidemic, mm. um, and she also talked a lot about this idea that um, you know young gay people are under threat by trans ideology, and it's kind of a new form of gay conversion therapy. And Dennis, you wrote about this for us at Spiked. I did. Why don't you talk a little bit about what's happened here with Kimmy Badenoch? Yeah, I mean, Badenoch delivered a, a bit of a game changer this week. She said the unsayable, and, and as she pointed out, it isn't a left-right issue. This everything she was saying was being echoed by left wingers um, across the chamber as well, like Neil Hanvey MP, Joe Cherry. There's the grown-ups have come back into this debate, and it scared the hell out of the people who normally silence yeah. and just try to cut off legitimate lines of debate. So we had Sir Chris Bryant in the chamber, a grown man, telling us that the words of the Secretary of State made him feel unsafe, which he went on to mock, in my view, quite justifiably, in committee. I thought that was a low base tactic to try and get her to feel guilty or say that she shouldn't have said what she said. And what Badnock said was very important. She said, look, there is almost an epidemic of young gay children. She repeated it in a very sort of Neil Kinnock way, you know, young gay children um, turning up at these gender clinics. She is right. 5,000% increase in natal females between 2003 and 2013. 80 to 90% of the cohort are same-sex attracted. The staff there are saying... This feels like a new form of gay conversion therapy. Anyone with their eyes open can see that this is a new form of gay conversion therapy. The detransitioners are providing harrowing evidence of this being a new form of uh, gay conversion therapy. Badnock herself spoke to Kira Bell, 
um, who brought the 2020 mm -hmm. judicial review into the turf stock. Surprise, surprise, Keira rebels a lesbian. Well, that's no coincidence, right? So Badenoch, we've got a great inversion here. Badenoch is the one who is the gay rights hero. She's the one who's saying, I'm actually concerned about this. And she's being met by people who, who try and get her to feel guilty or try to vilify her. So Kate Osborne seizes on the word epidemic. She then misrepresents that in committee mm -hmm. and says, you quote, likened it to a disease. So she accuses the minister of using inflammatory language, but she herself goes for the most inflammatory language she can. Mm -hmm. And she says something which was not accurate, if I put it in those terms. She says in a letter, you likened trans people to disease. That's not true. Kemi Badenoch said there is an epidemic of uh, presentations at this um, clinic. That's perfectly normal metaphorical use of, of language. But it's very telling about what the other side of this debate do. They have nothing of substance to say to the serious issue mm -hmm. of actual gay conversion going on in our lifetime, which I fear that it has happened. They have nothing to say to that issue. So what do they do? They play language games. Mm -hmm. And they're having to ignore also the mounting evidence, not just as yeah. you suggested in terms of the, the figures, but the reports from inside the Tavistock, the dark jokes that would be made about soon enough there's not going to be any gay people left as a consequence of what is taking place. And it's, a, it's an incredible rights scandal, which has been completely ignored because, quote-unquote, trans rights apparently has to conquer everything before it. I, I was also quite struck in that committee meeting how when you actually see these kind of debates take place in, the, in a context like that, on the kind of trans-ally, trans-activist side, they never really send their best, do they? They're always incredibly poorly briefed. So when um, Badenoch is pushing back on Osborne very hard, you're, you're a liar, I never said that. Where did I say that? She was like, uh, uh, I, you know, that just was stumbling across. You think if you're going to make that kind of charge, you'd think you'd have done your homework, yeah. you'd have your kind of backup point. She couldn't say anything. And I think that speaks to the fact that, first of all, how this ideology has been unthinkingly absorbed by a section of society and politics who just want to feel like a good person. I think that goes for a lot of people on that committee, frankly. You know, they just want to look good at the right dinner parties, etc. Um, then there's also the fact that they are so unaccustomed to even the most minor pushback, which is why when someone like Bagnock, who's very clear in her views, has looked at this very closely, has met with all the people involved, um, and is not willing to back down easily... They just completely crumble. And that's a story that we've seen repeated time and time again, particularly when some of these trans activist groups have been had, having to account for themselves, it's say, at a tribunal or in a courtroom mm. or whatever, where mm. they can't just do the no debate tactic, where they can't just run away, where they can't just turn to the person cross-examining them and accuse them of transphobia or mm. something. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a really stark reminder, I think, of like how much can be achieved if just more people refuse to play along with that, to yeah. push back to marshal the arguments and to say no, which I thought both in the House of Commons and in that committee, Kemi Badenoch was a very powerful example of how effective that can be when you just say no, stop, this is very important. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. We, and, and as Badenoch said, we have to do better than this, mm -hmm. right? We are talking here about clinical therapeutic provision for very, very troubled kids. Some of these kids... Um, are, are deeper on the autistic spectrum. Some of them have been bullied. Some of them have been sexually abused. We're talking about a cohort here where we shouldn't be in a situation, and I fear that this is Kate Osborne's game, I'm afraid. We shouldn't be in a situation where someone is manufacturing clickbait for Twitter. I mean, Osborne said in advance of this, when I get to committee, I'll have a few questions for her. It's like, well... You know, this is the lives of young gay people, mate. 
I could do, you know, we could do better than this tit for tat, this party politics. This shouldn't be party political. We should all be able to look at the evidence and say there's too many autistic girls here. Right. That's not a Labour Tory issue. That's a we have to do better as human beings issue. So I'm I would agree with you. It's low quality stuff from that side. And I, I just lament that this is the case. It, it, it's like when Osborne unthinkingly said, oh, bad not once. And, and, and the government are looking at RHSC. So, you know, basically sex ed in schools and the concern that some providers are teaching um, basically gender identity ideology. And of course, I say in passing, the kids most likely to be told you've got the wrong body and you need surgery are the ones who don't fit in and they're more likely to be gays and lesbians, right? So when, when Badnock is talking about that, Osborne it, it hits back by saying, oh, that's the new Section 28. And I have to say, particularly as a gay person looking at that, I'm just like, please stop misusing our history, right? Because as, as I've just pointed out, the reforms here are designed to protect the very constituency you say you're protecting. It, so it's a complete inversion in the same way as, you know, as I said a minute ago, don't accuse other people of inflammatory language if you're going to say that they said the word disease. Uh, in fact, what she said was you liken them to disease, which she's now fallen back on today <laughs> to say, well, I didn't actually say you used that word. It's like, well, you know. These are the tactics on <laughs> well, It's something else, isn't it? It's something else. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. What looks like the return of blasphemy laws to Mm. Europe. So um, Denmark, uh, this happened late last week on uh, Thursday, I believe. Denmark announced that it was passing a new law that is criminalizing Quran burning. Now, it didn't explicitly say that um, you can't burn Qurans, but it did say that you were no longer allowed to um, improperly treat um, the books or texts that were sacred to religions. So obviously that includes Quran, includes the Bible, includes all sorts of other holy texts. Um, and it was also very obvious that Denmark passed this law with the Quran in mind. We've seen um, recently in Scandinavia in general um, a lot of cases where um, far-right groups, but also apostates, ex-Muslims, have been um, burning Qurans to make a political point. Um, Tom, what have you made of this? What it, is this a massive setback for free speech in Denmark? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it's a really depressing chapter in the story of the attempt to effectively kind of globalise Islamic blasphemy laws. I think this is a something that kind of came and went without much discussion, apart from on places like Spikes, but is really, really central. Um, So as you say, this is a thinly veiled Quran burning bill, effectively. It's now been signed into law. Um, No one is really even pretending this isn't about anything but Quran burning. Even government officials in the Danish coalition government have said we are putting a stop to Quran burnings on social media. I thought there was a really striking um, quote that came from one of the spokespeople for the moderate party, who were part of the coalition there, who said, this is a law that we're passing not out of desire, but out of necessity. Mm. And that is such a tremendously depressing and revealing statement. So obviously the context here, not only have these Quran burnings taken place, but also as a consequence, both in Denmark and Sweden, you've seen the terror threat level rising precipitously. They've also had a lot of pushback from the leaders of Muslim-majority countries. In Iran, both the Danish and the Swedish kind of diplomats were summoned in for addressing down. In Iraq, I believe both their um, embassies were stormed um, as a consequence of all of this. Uh, the... IOC, the OIC, I should say, which is the Organization of Islamic Countries, has been essentially pushing for something to be done about these Scandinavian countries. And this is a, just a bold capitulation to those demands. Um, it's a tearing up of hard-won Danish freedoms because theocrats elsewhere in the world or terrorists within their own country have decided that they're upset about people mocking what it is that they happen to believe or not showing due respect to a text that they happen to hold to. So I I think it's really difficult um, not to see this as anything other than a really kind of stark chapter in the the decades-long process, we might get into how how long the story is, of the attempt to take Islamic blasphemy laws and effectively impose them by any means necessary. What I think we're seeing here is the shift from that being a kind of internalised thing. You know, it doesn't do to do that. You know, uh, intense fear about blaspheming against this particular religion. The fact that it's now becoming kind of black and white letter law, Mm. I think is something new and and particularly troubling in that sense. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, what do you make of this, Dennis? I don't know if you saw this. I should also say that um, not only is it now a crime to burn a Quran or religious text, but it's also can be punished by a fine or up to two years in prison. So you could go to jail for up to two years for improperly treating a Quran in Denmark. So what have you, what have you well, made of this, Dennis? I, I guess speaking of my legal hat on rather than the sort of gay rights hat, um, I, I find it, it, it extraordinary... Um, one, I question the degree to which this is compliant with a human rights framework. I, I don't see how um, this fits with relatively well-known freedom of expression cases. Um, it, it certainly wouldn't fit with British common law conceptions of, of freedom of speech. And I think of Lord Justice Sedley and DPP and Redmond Bate saying, you know, free, free speech includes the heretical, the obnoxious, mm -hmm. and uh, freedom of speech that doesn't offend people is not a freedom worth having. So I, I question the longevity of the law for that reason. I, I wonder to what degree that's going to be coherent with wider human rights obligations. That makes me in turn question why on earth a parliament would place itself potentially at risk of a declaration of incompatibility. I could only think that they may have considered it a short-term measure and end up with a few test cases. If 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 that is if that is the position, it's it's a very strange road to take, particularly if one looks at the jurisprudential history of Denmark, which abolished its last blasphemy laws, you know, quite a few years back. Mm. So it is it is, I think, correct to characterize it in the first place as a blasphemy law. But in the second place, I just wonder the degree to which that's actually viable. Because I get I get the point mm -hmm. about capitulation yeah. to other countries. But you know, just as in the same way in the say immigration debate, people moan um, on from the right generally, or oh, we can't do anything because the human rights framework. Well, that framework is going to kick in here at some point. So just legally speaking, I, I, I wonder what the position here is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's um, interesting as well just how often the kind of human rights framework has sort of failed in attempts to sort of defend freedom of speech, apart from in certain terms. I mean, it's interesting. As I imagine the defence that's going to be made here, and there could well be a slightly less full-fat version of this law in Sweden, where they've had similar kind of spate of Quran burnings, and also some of their citizens have been um, killed in a terrorist attack recently in Brussels, where the terrorist in question explicitly targeted them on the basis that it was Swedish. So we might see something similar here, but it seems like they're going to go down this kind of national security route, effectively, that allowing, whether it's far-right agitators, whether it's anyone to do this, is po in itself poses a kind of national security threat. So as we've seen time again, sometimes these things can often count against any kind of meaningful pushback on the legal level. But I think mm. it's, it's a sort of reminder that um, we do have to fight these things out on the moral level as well. And that's where we've really been slipping because, you know, this is not an alien problem to a place like the United Kingdom. I mean, we don't have um, blasphemy laws of the kind that have just been ushered in in Denmark. But if you think about Batley Grammar, if you think about the teacher there, you know, still in hiding as a consequence of showing Mohammed cartoons to his students in a religious studies class about blasphemy. Perfectly normal place to which to discuss that kind of material. Um, and if you think also about what happened in Wakefield not too long ago, mm. where that autistic schoolboy was um, expelled, subject to death threats, um, and his mother then had to go on a kind of apology tour around the local mosque as a consequence of him bringing a Quran into school and it getting knocked to the floor and being lightly scuffed. So it's we're very much in that stage of these things are not institutionalized in quite the way but they are kind of already internalized in terms of how we deal with these things that um you almost don't need the law but i think there is something still very symbolically significant about the fact that um this is actually something that has now reached the statute in a western country and it being denmark as well mm -hmm. given its kind of re recent history from the danish cartoons controversy in 2005 where there was of course a lot of equivocation amongst their 
cultural elites about that, the sort of thing that we saw in the UK with the Rushdie affair. You know, people saying, well, they probably shouldn't have done that or it's a bit unseemly or whatever. But nevertheless, the, the state resisted any attempts to properly criminalise what Ellen's Poston had done. Um, through to, you know, relatively soon after the Charlie Hebdo attack, of course, there was the shooting in Copenhagen at an event where there was a Swedish cartoonist who had drawn Mohammed and seemed to be part of the reason that it was targeted. So they have definitely become one of those nations who have become a kind of flashpoint in this kind of Islamist, this sort of global Islamist campaign against freedom of speech and so on. So to see them capitulate if, and to see them do it via introducing these laws just feels like it has a, a really grim symbolic significance, I think. And Tom, don't you think this is particularly chilling that it happened so close to the sentencing around the Samuel Petit case mm. uh, that we've seen this week? Yeah, so this um, is an interesting development in that. So obviously Samuel Petit, the teacher, is beheaded in France in 2020 by a Chechen Islamist. Um, there was this ongoing case which is now resolved where basically a bunch of teenagers who um, had some involvement in this killing. Essentially, there's one um, young woman in particular who essentially started a lie a rumor about him which spun out of control part of the reason that he ended up being targeted in the way that he was she wasn't actually in class the day in which the cartoons were supposedly presented um, but she claimed that he asked the muslim pupils to identify themselves and then to leave the room this is kind of part of the spiral of rumors that led to him to his death um, as well as a number of um, young men i believe who have on the day itself seemed to be involved in basically telling the Islamist in question where he was, you know, is that him? Have you seen him around? All that kind of thing, taking money for doing so. So they've been handed basically a bunch of suspended prison sentences as a consequence of that. But it's a real reminder about why you cannot la allow this kind of medieval intolerance into your society because it creates these kind of moments of hysteria in which basically gossip and half-truths can spin completely out of control and leave to someone to lose their life. It's the sort of thing you, you see happening in Pakistan all the time now, mm. which has a real problem with... Um, not, not, not only does it have kind of blasphemy laws per se, but as a consequence of blasphemy being taken so seriously in that country, um, you very quickly have a lot of hate and violence being whipped up against individuals who, even if they've been falsely accused of blaspheming or of being heretics or what have you. And I think it is very important to note that when we talk about making sure that blasphemy laws don't make a comeback, whether informally or formally in this country, that is as much about protecting um, Muslim communities is about protecting the rest of British society, if you like. The only death that I'm aware of in the last 10 or 15 years in the UK as a consequence of blasphemy was an Ahmadi Muslim in Glasgow, a man called Assad Shah. People have kind of forgotten about this story. It's in 2016. There was a lot going on that year, but still. Because the Ahmadis are seen by many Muslims as essentially heretics. And as a consequence of this, in videos he put out online, a man from Bradford went up there and essentially stomped him to death. So it's a reminder that these things... When they allow to get out of control, this attempt to kind of impose these sort of Islamic blasphemy laws, we should resist it as much for the minorities within minorities as it is for anyone else in British society. So one, I think that's really important to take heed of, particularly with the example of, you know, ex-Muslims as well. So I think all of those people, liberal Muslims, ex-Muslims, member of, members of um, dissenting sects, are as much in the firing line, if not more so, than the rest of British society or Danish society or whatever, when you allow these things to take hold. And I think that's important to remember when we talk about this issue. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell 
everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. So for our final topic today, something a little bit festive. Um, a bit of light relief. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> After that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the uh, sort of German offshoot of uh, Extinction Rebellion, Lester Generation, um, have started this week vandalizing Christmas trees all across the country in Germany. Um, so, yeah, in, in cities, in public spaces across Germany, um, they have been spray painting Christmas trees in that distinctive, um, as we're used to in the UK, just up oil, orange. Um, and they say that they're doing this to sort of bring people's awareness away from the festivities and <laughs> back to the fact that we are on the brink of heat death, um, mm. supposedly. Um so, yeah, this is also the same group that um, last year managed to cut the top off of Berlin's very famous 15-metre-high mm. Christmas tree. They sawed the top off um, the Christmas tree. Um, and Just Up Oil in the UK have also promised that they're going to start taking similar action. So, Dennis, uh, what do you make of this? What What is it about Christmas that really gets these people so fired up? Merry Christmas, yeah. <laughs> Just Up Oil. I... You know, I, I mean, they're just so joyless, this lot, sometimes, aren't mm. they? Um, there, there is, I'm afraid, it's a stream of green politics that is rather doomsday cultish, that is rather sanctimonious, and is absolutely determined to stamp all over um, anyone experiencing anything approaching joy. And it's so heavy-handed, <laughs> and it's so you know, your betters telling you mm. what's good for you. And the comedy is only heightened by the fact they've all got Downton Abbey-style really posh names, you mm. know, Chiara and Tristan descending from <laughs> their manor to tell you, don't you dare enjoy Christmas. And look, I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't genuine environmental concerns here and there, but I find the joylessness of this movement mm. and the upper bourgeois middle-class mechanisms of this movement really irritating. Going into museums and ensuring that artworks which are there to edify, to lift the spirits, which are open to the working classes to go and see for free, you know, making sure that the joy you can experience from art is a no-go because uh, Chiara and Tristan are wagging their fingers at you, doing the same now for Christmas. I find their choice of targets um, instructive, joyless and about about as much fun as a doomsday cult which is which is sort of what they are um they're morphing into mm. in my in my in my personal opinion <laughs> not, not, not 
Well, I should say I'm not speaking on behalf of the organisation. That's just Kavanaugh's view of it. Can I, can I also add, by the way, I've always regarded green politics as the progenitor of gender, and I find them very, very interesting because there's this sanctimony, this joylessness. Mm -hmm. My enemy is not just incorrect. They are morally wrong. I am a hero and I am on a crusade. One maps onto the other perfectly. It's why all the green parties go along with gender. It's, mm. the, it's, it's got the same rhythm as a philosophy. No, completely. And it, it seems to attract a number of the same people as yeah. well. You know, <laughs> you yeah. could always imagine them on uh, sort of gender ideology demonstration one day and then gluing themselves to something yeah, yeah, yeah. in the name of the climate the next day. Yeah. Um, and in both cases, they're not really sending their best often. But yes, it's, um, it's the pure tannical aspect of it which is so striking it does feel like the per <laughs> chopping off the tops of Christmas trees and spraying them with orange paint because people aren't paying enough attention to the serious <laughs> issues as far as they're concerned it is the perfect embodiment of that H.L. Mencken quote about Puritans being gripped by the fear that someone somewhere might be enjoying themselves. Yeah, you know? that's right. It's a perfect example of that. And I think there's a reason why um, green politics often takes on this very puritanical form, why it has been targeting people's leisure activities, whether it's the snook or whether it's the Christmas market. Um, you've written on Spike this week, Lauren, about um, the strange way in which um, every year now we seem to have this kind of spate of articles saying things like Christmas is, you know, a kind of... <laughs> Is the is the worst thing for the environment. The Christmas markets are killing the planet. All the glitter's going to get into the water supply. All of these things, just one after another. Um, and I think it just speaks to the fact that, you know, underneath the the often very overheated claims, pardon the pun, about the climate and what's going to happen in the next two, three, four, five years, you know, young people claim they've got no future when that's almost certainly not the <laughs> going to be the case. However, you read the um, the data. Um, it's driven by something else. Like there is this kind of desire on the one hand, discomfort with sort of uh, material abundance and developed society. They, they have this kind of very mm. sort of chocolate box view of what it would be like to live a more natural, in line with nature kind of life, um, which I think is a lot easier to think that kind of thing when you do come from a quite a well-off background. Um, but the other thing is just the joylessness. Like they are slightly irritated by the notion that things in life can be a bit frivolous. Mm. That you might buy things you don't always need Need in, the, in that sense, you yeah. know. Um, that, you know, people might take pleasure in the sort of simple things in life and that they don't have to take everything so seriously all of the time. There's that kind of sackcloth and ashes sort of nature to environmentalism seems really wired in, really, you know. And I think the um, you're just seeing the most ridiculous... Um, unintentionally absurd expression of it in people going around cutting down Christmas trees and thinking that's going to gain them any sort of pop popular support as a consequence. Yeah. It, it's the class aspect that really gets me. Mm. You, you know, you do not you do not hear working class voices on mm. ju Just Stop. Mm. What you, you, you hear very, very, very privileged people, deeply, deeply, deeply middle class people. It re this is, there's a sort of bourgeois insecurity with... The way, as you say, the built environment and the, the mm -hmm. lived world is working out, and it's almost like the leisure classes have decided, as I said, as a class flex, to go out mm -hmm. and and lecture what they believe to be their social inferiors. I mean, they really are wagging the finger. They really mm -hmm. are. You know, we un we understand that. You know, you're all going to die. Uh, be better than than you do. Um, it's 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 extraordinary, and it's. It, it's a sort of paradigm for our age because you see this again and again and again. You see elite sort of projects mm -hmm. speaking down to the great unwashed. And ge gender is another good example um, of that, where, you, where you've got a sort of elite class, particularly in the third sector, 
um, spe- speaking down to people. So I, re- I regard this as a manifestation of sort of, I don't know, bourgeois insecurity, mm. really. That's what it is. And it's a research, it's, it's an assertion mm-hmm. of power over social inferiors. No, I, I think that's right. And also, it's not just a ad hominem to say this. I mean, it's like a measurable fact. Like there was a, <laughs> there was a study that was done, I think it was the first round of Extinction Rebellion arrests. Mm. Um, and so some academics looked at who was going through the system and they kind of looked at what their demographic background was, what their educational background. They are overwhelmingly southern, middle-class, university-educated. I think something like 80%, north of 80% of them have a degree. And what's interesting is that even in green politics as well, even the kind of old aristocracy is relatively well-represented. I think one of the Extinction Rebellion co-founders is like the daughter of a a baronet or something. Um, Or I should say, the they be of a baronet. I think she's non-binary instead. So it speaks (laughs) to your point. (laughs) Speaks to your point about how all these things work. But no, I completely agree. If you are of a kind of um, either a sort of um, self-flagellating bourgeois type or someone of a more sort of aristocratic background, you can understand why this movement would appeal to you because you don't understand what actually material um, difficulty is like. You have no um, appreciation for how... um, good um, things are when things are actually developed and you're living in a more plentiful society. But there is also, and I imagine this speaks more to the aristocratic side, the desire to go back to things maybe when uh, people knew their place a bit more. <laughs> I dare, that is a bit more ad hominem, but I dare say that plays yeah. a bit of a role in this. I just think the, the other aspect of this, uh, the, one that, the one that does worry me, seriously speaking, particularly with young people caught up in, in, in this, is the degree to which... They genuinely believe, um, you know, there is no future for us on mm. this planet. We are a sort of scourge on this planet. It would probably be better if yeah. we weren't here and and, we, and the planet is boiling. I think we had a sort of flavour of that when I was growing up in the 80s, but it wasn't anything like this. I mean, the worst of it was sort of acid rain and a hole in the ozone yeah. layer. It is now at the stage where some young people genuinely believe you know, we do not have a future, we're all mm-hmm. going to boil. And that that is, I think, firmly in the realms of doomsday stuff. The end of the world is nigh. And I do think that some of the messaging on this, as, you know, the catalyst of social media makes messages across all sorts of debates, more and more and more extreme, I do think that it's actually a cruelty to visit that on young people and for young for young people to believe that and to visit that hopelessness on on young people so i do you know i do wonder the degree to which these guys actually think about that because i wish they would <laughs> it's not very nice it's yeah. <laughs> my view be more nice <laughs> anyway still but it makes you proud to be british though to have such posh protesters doesn't it? You know, what, what, what other country has baronets and stuff it's like down to that Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code INCREDIBLE. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.